This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 6, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. When the drumbeat for war gets started, it's hard to stop. How do federal agencies contribute to it? And how do federal agencies frame our thinking about the value of their work versus the risks we face, and thus keeping their budgets growing? Economist Abigail Hall is co-author of the new book, Manufacturing Militarism, U.S. Government Propaganda in the War on Terror, available now. We spoke this week. To what extent has the U.S. government used propaganda in order in order to further the laudable aims of winning wars against Nazis, for example? So to answer your question, propaganda has been used extensively by the U.S. government. Um, while my co-author and I focus primarily on instances and we detail case studies related to the war on terror, so all of this is in the post-9-11 context, we can and do see the use of propaganda throughout U.S. history. What's changed over time, particularly if you look at World War I and then World War II and beyond, is that we see this increasing uh, centralization of information and the centralization of disinformation. So when you say information, what are the key pieces of information that the public either once had access to that they do not have access to today? Or, what, you know, is it just the flow of information that is more tightly controlled? What is it? So there are a couple of different things that we can think about. So we're particularly focused within the defense security sector, in which case you have government control over both what information is presented as well as when it is presented. Probably one of the easiest illustrations of this increased security or this increased control over information is related to security clearances um, or classifications. So you think about watching a, a James Bond movie or something like that, and you see you know top secret uh, spread across files, things like that. Um, it used to be that classifications were given to materials which were truly sensitive. So you can imagine, for instance, why you may not want your troop movements to be publicly available information. But over time, what's happened is that it's become easier and easier for things to be classified. And there is this incentive for this information to be overly protected. So citizens who then want to get information or even other members of government, so oversight bodies and so on, uh, are unable to access that information and unable to effectively check what government is doing. When you have a massive bureaucracy, uh, it is easy for lifers in the system to snooker and outmaneuver uh, members of Congress because they have to be organized in order to uh, demand or get some accountability for agencies that are refusing to provide relevant information to the people who have actual oversight over their activities. Right. So typically when we're thinking about the functions of democracy that we like, in a perfectly functioning democratic society, there are those checks and balances. So voters can effectively reward or punish elected officials. Elected officials can effectively reward or punish bureaucrats and so on. In order for this ideal government to function, though, it requires that the information is available, and it also requires that people have the incentive to act upon that information. 
One of the things that we highlight, though, in this book, and these are insights that are not new to us, these come to us from public choice economics, is that there's a variety of principal agent problems that prevent these mechanisms from effectively working. And so uh, the information may not be available or people may not have the ability to act upon that information. Propaganda is important because it inhibits both of those areas. So uh, when we see how uh, the government generates uh, support for either uh, military intervention or uh, just in general projecting this sort of muscular attitude about uh, the U.S. military and and how wonderful uh, it is as an experience for young people to to join up and that sort of thing, or otherwise quell uh, dissent about the activities that the military is involved in. What are the big ways that uh, the DOD and other uh, parts of the Fed, federal government undertake this? So there are a few different things that we can look at, and we detail some specific instances of attempts to generate support for particular U.S. foreign policy, so namely the war in Iraq and what led up to that and the propaganda campaign before the invasion and then also what happened after the invasion. But then we also talk about what you've mentioned, which is how to use propaganda to generate and foster this broader culture of militarism. And to that end, we see a few different things. And it might come from places that seem incongruous or maybe a bit unexpected. So we talk about things like threat inflation and the TSA. So this idea that there are terrorists lurking around, bound to strike at any point. You know, you should be terrified when you fly on an airplane, when the reality of the situation is, uh, 9-11 was an extreme outlier. It is highly unlikely that anything like that would ever happen again, but that's not what's being portrayed, even though that statistical information is very well known at this point. We also talk about things like sports. So people may not know, for instance, that if they've ever been or watched an NFL game, those things like full flag displays or patriotic homecomings members of the National Guard singing the national anthem and so on, uh, those things have been paid for by the Department of Defense. Uh, This was a scandal a while back referred to as paid patriotism. Uh, The late Senator John McCain and Jeff Flake out of Arizona wrote this big report on it. Um, We don't have a ton of information outside of what it is that, that they reported, but we talk about and we detail these types of things. So it's It's pervasive and it's coming from a lot of different areas. Yeah, I wonder uh, to the extent that stadiums uh, are subsidized, that there's any way to use that as a wedge to get some of the, some more of that uh, information. But I, uh, as you say, it's, it's difficult to come by. So when a young man comes to surprise his wife uh, after uh, coming back from war this is these are always very heartwarming moments you're saying that the the military actually pays to arrange those events uh, at least in some instances yes these things were directly paid for so we have documentation coming from different uh, NFL teams for instance basically saying things like uh the department of defense is going to give insert this particular team so many dollars uh, and as a result, they are going to do, uh, you know, a, a salute 
to the military during every home game, something like that. And they're they're laid out explicitly. We don't have really a comprehensive overview of exactly how much was spent and where because the data that we have is limited. Uh, we're missing, in fact, about a decade of data. And the data that we do have is not not comprehensive. I am vaguely familiar with this, and, and you probably know a lot more of the details uh, of this. But when someone wants to make a movie about that features the military, um, what is required or what was required of, say, people making Top Gun, for example? So what uh, what I think you're referring to is the practice of major film studios sending their scripts to the Department of Defense. Uh, there is a film office for every major branch of the military. The CIA also has one. The FBI also has one. Um, from the perspective of the DOD, what happens is basically this. Uh, film studios will request support from the DOD. So that oftentimes means things like using DOD locations, equipment, military personnel, and so on for their films, either at a discounted rate or if they film, say, training exercises, then this is of at no cost to the studio. They do this in exchange for the DOD having a say in the editorial process. So the Department of Defense will come back and say, yes, we would love to give you support. However, we find this character or we find this storyline to be particularly problematic. And what we see is that in many cases, these film studios are not only willing to acquiesce to what it is that the DOD suggests, but oftentimes they will take suggestions sometimes word for word, or they'll scrub characters altogether. This is obviously problematic if you are trying to paint a perhaps critical or at least a a questioning picture of the actions of the U.S. military, uh, because the DOD is understandably reluctant to offer support to films that are critical of them. Uh, Phil Strub, who is the the main individual, if you go looking into this from the DOD side, he's really candid in in his bias there, and basically says that he wouldn't have been able to sleep at night if he had supported films that showed the DOD in anything other than a positive light. You mentioned threat inflation and how that is a serious problem. Well, how do we get at the data about correctly identifying uh, the relative risk associated with some particular threat? So there are a few different people who've done some really great work on threat inflation, particularly the threat related to terrorism. So John Mueller being the person who I think of first and foremost in that arena, who's written extensively about well, what's what are the what are the odds that someone in the United States say is going to be killed in an act of transnational terrorism? And the reality of the situation is that the probability of that is very, very, very small. Um, there is a really long list of things that are more likely to kill you than a transnational terror attack. There has been a really long literature and economics going back to at least the 1970s, talking about terrorism, how to prevent terrorism, the relative threat to terrorism, and so on. 
if you look at the periods, because people always want to make it seem like, oh, well, 9-11 and the period after that is so much more dangerous from a terrorism perspective than the era before that. And that's simply not true at all. So the, you know, 9-11 is, is being an outlier. But that's certainly not the way that this is painted if you look at this from the government's perspective. So think about for people who've maybe flown since the, you know, flown since the pandemic or think pre-pandemic, the, when you, the last time you flew, you walk into the TSA, you have these signs everywhere, these official logos, people who are in uniform, you're stepping through these big security scanners, you're running all of your stuff through. Just think, think about the, like the pomp and circumstance surrounding it. The narrative that underlies that is this idea that there is this really big threat posed by terrorists within the context of flying. The other part of that narrative is that the government, in this case in the form of the TSA, is the solution to this particular problem. And so we detail how it is that you get something like the TSA, but then also how this narrative surrounding the TSA is crafted and then the implications of that. Because what we see is that over time, if you look post 9-11, there are these particular cases or in some cases, not really any kind of meaningful threat to airports or airlines in this post 9-11 period. And after each one of these, you see a similar narrative. Oh, there is this really big risk even when it's not a really big risk. There's this really huge risk. And so we have to jump in and do something to fix it. So this is when you see things like the introduction of taking off your shoes or liquid bands or stepping through these body scanners. All of those kinds of things relate to this idea of this threat that simply isn't there, but the narrative is there. Yeah. And so uh, there are multiple benefits to that from a government agency perspective. One, people are broadly probably a little more likely to submit to these the creeping invasiveness of uh, a security checkpoint at an airport, uh, which they are as invasive as they've ever been today. Um, and uh, you can trust that your the funding for that program will be relatively secure. Is it, is it as simple as that or is there, is there more to it? I think that's a, a pretty good summary. So you're absolutely right. Um, one economist who my co-author and I have drawn from extensively, Robert Higgs, talks about this idea in his 1987 book, Crisis and Leviathan, this idea of the ratchet effect. So how it is that government grows in terms of scale and scope. He points to crisis as being a critical component of that. One of the things that helps to boost this growth in scale and scope is fear. So when people are afraid, they're more likely to acquiesce to things which previously would have been unacceptable. So the example I use with respect to flying is if you had told someone in 1995, let's say, that every time they flew, they weren't going to be able to carry their shampoo with them and a government agent may very well grope them in a place Whereas that happened to you in other circumstances, you could charge the person with sexual assault. Um, They would have thought that you were insane. And yet people now think of this as just being a normal part of the flying experience. 
Um, you're absolutely right about the bureaucratic point that bureaucracies don't exist to go out of business. They exist to grow. And so one of the ways that they grow is by linking up their mission with that of whoever their funding source is. And so bureaucracies are going to try to expand their mission, what we refer to as mission creep, uh, in order to try to grow their budget, grow the number of personnel who work within that bureau. So uh, John Mueller and I have spoken on a number of occasions that we should note he is affiliated with the the Cato Institute and has written uh, books for Cato. Um, he and I have talked about the degree to which uh, federal agencies with respect to uh, that deal with terrorism related functions, the FBI, CIA uh, and the, the U.S. military um, have almost wholly invented terror potential narrowly averted in their eyes terrorist incidents where there was essentially no risk that the uh, idiot that they had commandeered for the purpose of this display was going to be in any way successful in carrying out a terrorist attack you are you're absolutely right about this tendency to make non-plots look like a lot more than they are so one of the things that we we draw from in that chapter related to the TSA is actually from some of Mueller's work categorizing and cataloging plots in the post 9-11 period. And I say plot very loosely because in this catalog, he includes things like plots that just didn't go anywhere without any help from any government force or plots that wouldn't have gone anywhere because government agencies had infiltrated that plot at such an early point. And so we see in a lot of these instances, these, again, the term plot, it's like I want to use it, but, but also don't want to use it because it's not necessarily the right word. But you, you do see this, this idea that, oh, this this threat was immediate and it had the potential to rival another 9-11, when in reality, there was no chance that most of these plots would have worked. So one of the things that we talk about in the chapter related to the TSA is a, again, quote unquote, plot to blow up fuel pipelines going to JFK Airport in New York. However, pretty much immediately, the companies responsible for building and maintaining these pipelines pointed out, um, actually, that's impossible because these things are designed specifically to avoid things like that. But if you look at the quotes from public officials that came out right after this, you get a really, really different sense of what had happened. Of course, what's getting put out there is the information from the public officials and not the information from the people who actually know anything about how the fuel pipelines work. Uh, which brings me to my next question, which is uh, to what extent, and uh, I, I feel like I know what you're going to say, but please feel free to surprise me. To what extent does the media, uh, you know, when the U.S. switches to a war footing, it's almost, it is like turning on a dime. It happens so quickly and the move into talking about technicalities, about talking about uh, whatever threat is posed, 
Uh, they don't want to be left behind by other networks that are covering this more breathlessly or uh, news other newspapers that are using smaller type pr print on the headlines uh, talking about a looming threat. Yeah, so there are a lot of different things that we could say about the media. So in terms of, you know, what what the media is going to print versus what they're not going to print. Obviously, the sexier story is, oh, you know, we came this close to disaster and averted it as opposed to, well, this actually wasn't that big of a deal and people are overinflating it. Um, one of those sells better than than the other one. But beyond that, we can talk about a few different things as it relates to the media. So one of the things that we talk about, particularly with respect to the war in Iraq, is the process of embedding journalists within the context of an actual conflict. So this is where you have a journalist who is with, say, like the, the military unit that they're supposed to be covering. This creates an obvious kind of perverse incentive, because if you're a journalist and you are covering people who are supposed to be responsible for your physical safety, you're probably a bit more disinclined to write anything negative about those individuals. Um, also, too, we talk about the likelihood that you're actually going to be put into a heavy conflict zone. But with respect to thinking about the media and propaganda, toward the end of the book, we talk about some potential solutions to solving this problem. And one of those solutions is potentially the media. So thinking about the media serving its function as the fourth estate. The issue with that, though, is that that is predicated upon media being independent and being able to obtain and share information. And so to the degree that the media is not independent of government sources, and if the media is prevented from either gaining access to or distributing that information, then obviously that inhibits the media from serving that critical check. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.